Armed Joy by Alfredo M. Bonanno Introduction This book was written in 1977 in the momentum of the revolutionary struggles taking place in Italy at the time, and that situation, now profoundly different, should be borne in mind when reading it today. The revolutionary movement, including the anarchist one, was in a developing phase and anything seemed possible, even a generalization of the armed clash. But it was necessary to protect oneself from the danger of specialization and militarization that a restricted minority of militants intended to impose on the tens of thousands of comrades who were struggling with every possible means against repression and against the state's attempt rather weak to tell the truth, to reorganize the management of capital. That was the situation in Italy, but something similar was taking place in Germany, France, Great Britain, and elsewhere. It seemed essential to prevent the many actions carried out against the men in structures of power by comrades each day from being drawn into the planned logic of an armed party such as the Red Brigades in Italy. This is the spirit of the book. To show how a practice of liberation and destruction can come forth from a joyful logic of struggle, not a mortal schematic rigidity within the pre-established canons of a directing group. Some of these problems no longer exist. They have been solved by the hard lessons of history. The collapse of real socialism suddenly redimensioned the directing ambitions of Marxists of every tendency for good. On the other hand, it is not extinguished, but probably inflamed the desire for freedom and anarchist communism that is spreading everywhere, especially among the young generations. In many cases, without having recourse to the traditional symbols of anarchism, its slogans and theories, also considered with an understandable but not shareable gut refusal to be affected with ideology. This book has become topical again, but in a different way not as a critique of a heavy monopolizing structure that no longer exists, but because it can point out the potent capabilities of the individual on his or her road with joy to the destruction of all that which oppresses and regulates them. Before ending, I should mention that the book was ordered to be destroyed in Italy. The Italian Supreme Court ordered it to be burned, all the libraries who had a copy received a circular from the Home Ministry ordering its incineration. More than one librarian refused to burn the book, considering such a practice to be worthy of the Nazis of the Inquisition, but by law the volume cannot be consulted. For the same reason, the book cannot be distributed legally in Italy, and many comrades had copies confiscated during a vast wave of raids carried out for that purpose. I was sentenced to 18 months prison for writing this book. Alfredo M. Bonanno Catania, July 14, 1993 In Paris, 1848, the revolution was a holiday without a beginning or an end. Bakunin Chapter 1 why on earth did these dear children shoot Montanelli in the legs? Wouldn't it have been better to, shot him in the, to shoot him in the mouth? Of course it would, but it would also have been heavier, more vindictive and somber. 
to, to lame a beast like that can have a deeper, more meaningful side to it, which goes beyond revenge, beyond punishing him for his responsibility. Fascist journalists and bosses lackly that he is. To lame him forces him to limp, makes him remember. Moreover, laming is a more agreeable pastime than shooting in the mouth with pieces of brain squirting out through the eyes. The comrade who sets off in the fog every morning and walks into a stifling atmosphere of the factory or the office, only to see the same faces, the foreman, the timekeeper, the spy of the moment, the stakhonovate with seven children to support, feels the needs for revolution, the struggle and the physical clash, even a mortal one. But he also wants to bring himself some joy, right now, right away. And he nurtures this joy in his fantasies as he walks along, head down into the fog, spends hours on trains or trams, suffocates in the pointless goings-on of the office or admits the useless bolts that serve to hold the useless mechanisms of capital together. Remunerated joy, weekends off, or annual holidays paid by the boss is like paying to make love. It seems the same, but there's something lacking. Hundreds of theories pile up in books, pamphlets, and revolutionary papers. We must do this, do that, see things the way this one said or that one said, because they are the true interpreters of the this or the that ones of the past, those in capital letters who fill up the stifling volumes of the classics. Even the need to keep them close at hand is all part of the liturgy. Not to have them would be a bad sign, would be suspect. It is useful to keep them handy in any case. Bring, being heavy, they could always be thrown in the face of some nuisance. Not a new, but nevertheless a healthy confirmation of the validity of the revolutionary texts of the past and present. There is never anything about joy in these tomes. The austerity of the cloister has nothing to envy of the atmosphere one breathes in their pages. Their authors, priests of the revolution of revenge and punishment, pass their time weighing up blame and retribution. Moreover, these vestals and genes have taken a vow of chastity, so they also expect and impose it. They want to be rewarded for their sacrifice. First they abandon the comfortable surroundings of their class of origin, then they put their abilities at the disposal of the disinherited. They have grown accustomed to using words that are not their own and to puffing tip to with dirty tablecloths and unmade beds. Someone might listen to them at least. They dream of orderly revolutions, neatly drawn up principles, anarchy without turbulence. If things take a different turn, they start screaming provocation, yelling loud enough for the police to bear them. Revolutionaries are pious folk. The revolution is not. I call a cat a cat. Boilo. Chapter 2. We are all concerned with the revolutionary problem of how and what to produce, but nobody points out that producing is a revolutionary problem. If production is at the root of capitalist exploitation, to change the mode of production would merely change the mode of exploitation. A cat, even if you paint it red, is still a cat. The producer is sacred. Hands off. Sanctify his sacrifice in the name of the revolution. And le jour s'en fa. 
And what will we eat, concerned people will ask. Bread and strings, say the realists, with one eye on the pot and the other on their gun. Ideas, the muddling idealists state, with one eye on the book of dreams and the other on the human species. Anyone who touches productivity has had it. Capitalism and those fighting it sit alongside each other on the producer's corpse, but production must go on. The critique of political economy is the rationalization of the mode of production with the least effort by those who enjoy the benefits of it all. Everyone else, those who suffer exploitation, must take care to see nothing is lacking. Otherwise, how would we live? When he comes out into the light, the son of darkness sees nothing, just as when he went groping around in the dark. Joy blinds him. It kills him. So he says it is a hallucination and condemns it. The flabby, fat bourgeois bask in opulent idleness. So enjoyment is sinful. That would mean sharing the same sensations as the bourgeoisie and betraying those of the producing proletariat. Not so. The bourgeois goes to great lengths to keep the process of exploitation going. He is stressed, too, and never finds time for joy. His cruises are occasions, occasions for new investments, his lovers fifth columns for getting information on competitors. The productivity god kills even its most faithful disciples. Wrench their heads off, nothing but a deluge of rubbish will pour out. The hungry wretch harbors feelings of revenge when he sees the rich surrounded by their fawning entourage. The enemy must be destroyed before anything else. But save the booty. Wealth must not be destroyed, it must be used. It doesn't matter what it is, what it form it takes, or what prospects of employment it allows. What counts is grabbing it from whoever is holding on to it at the time, so that everyone has access to it. Everyone. Of course everyone. And how will that happen? With revolutionary violence. Good answer. But really, what will we do after we have cut off so many heads we are bored with it? What will we do when there are no more landlords to be found, even if we go looking for them with lanterns? Then it will be the reign of the revolution, to each according to their needs, from each according to their possibilities. Pay attention, comrade. There is a smell of bookkeeping here. We are talking of consumption and production. Everything is still in the dimension of productivity. Arithmetic makes you feel safe. Two and two make four. Who would dispute this, quote, truth? Numbers rule the world. If they have done till now, why shouldn't they continue to? We all need something solid and durable. Stones to build a wall to stem the impulses that start choking us. We all need objectivity. The boss swears by his wallet. The peasant by his spade. The revolutionary by his gun. Let in a glimmer of criticism and the whole scaffolding will collapse. In its heavy objectivity, the everyday world conditions and reproduces us. We are all children of daily banality. Even when we talk of, quote, serious things like revolution, our eyes are still glued to the calendar. The boss fears the revolution because it would deprive him of his wealth. The peasant will make it to get a piece of land, the revolutionary, to put his theory to test. If the problem is seen in these terms, there is no difference between wallet land, and revolutionary theory. These objects are all quite imaginary, mere mirrors of human illusion. Only the struggle 
is real. It distinguishes boss from peasant and establishes the link between the latter and the revolutionary. The forms of organization production takes forms of organization production takes are ideological vehicles to conceal illusory individual identity. This identity is projected into the illusory con- economic concept of value. A code establishes its inter- interpretation. The bosses control part of this code, as we see in consumerism. The technology of psychological warfare and total repression also give its con- gives its contribution to strengthening the idea that one is human on condition that one produces. Other parts of the code can be modified. They cannot undergo revolutionary change, but are simply adjusted from time to time. Think, for example, of the mass consumerism that has taken the place of the luxury consumerism of years gone by. Then, there are more refined forms, such as the self-managed control of production, another component of the code of exploitation, and so on. Anyone who decides to organize my life for me can never be my comrade. If they try to justify this with the excuse that someone must produce, otherwise we will all lose our identity as human beings and be overcome by, quote, wild, savage nature, we reply that the man-nature relationship is a product of the enlightened Marxist bourgeoisie. Why did they want to turn a sword into a pitchfork? Why must man continually strive to distinguish himself from nature? Men if they cannot attain what is necessary, tire themselves with that which is useless. Go. Chapter 3 Man needs many things. The statement is usually taken to mean that man has needs which he is obliged to satisfy. In this way, people are transformed from historically determined units into a duality, means and end simultaneously. They realize themselves through the satisfaction of their needs, that is, through work, so become the instrument of their own realization. Anyone can see how much mythology is concealed in statements such as this. If man distinguishes himself from nature through work, how can he fulfill himself in the satisfaction of his needs? To do this, he would already have become man, so have fulfilled his needs, which means he would not have to work. Commodities have a profoundly symbolic content. content. They become a point of reference, a unit of measure, and exchange value. The spectacle begins. Roles are cast and reproduce themselves to infinity. The actors continue to play their parts without any particular modifications. The satisfaction of needs becomes no more than a reflex, marginal effect. What matters is the transformation of people into, quote, things, and everything else along with them. Nature becomes a, quote, thing. Used, it is corrupted, and man's vital instincts along with it. An abyss gapes open between nature and man. It must be filled, and the expansion of the commodity market is seeing to it. The spectacle is expanding to the point of devouring itself along with its contradictions. Stage and audience enter the same dimension, proposing themselves for a higher, more far-reaching level of the same spectacle, and so on to infinity. Anyone who escapes the commodity code does not become objectified and falls, quote, outside the area of the spectacle. They are pointed at. They are surrounded by barbed wire. If they refuse englobement or an alternative form of codification, they are criminalized. 
You're clearly mad. It's forbidden to refuse the illusory in a world that has based reality on illusion, concreteness on the unreal. Capital manages this spectacle according to the laws of accumulation, but nothing can be accumulated to infinity, not even capital. The quantitative process in absolute is an illusion, a quantitative illusion to be precise. The bosses understand this perfectly. Exploitation adopts different forms and ideological models precisely to ensure this accumulation in qualitatively different ways, as it cannot continue in the quantitative aspect indefinitely. The fact that the whole process becomes paradoxical and illusory does not matter much to capital, because it is precisely that which holds the reins and makes the rules. If it has to sell illusion for reality and that makes money, then let's just carry on without asking too many questions. It is the exploited who foot the bill, so it is up to them to see the trick and worry about recognizing reality. For capital, things are fine as they are, even though they are based upon the greatest conjuring show in the world. The exploited almost feel nostalgia for this swindle. They have grown accustomed to their chains and have become attached to them. Now and then they have fantasies about fan- fascinating uprising and bloodbaths, and they let themselves be taken in by the speeches of new political leaders, <coughs> Obama. The Revolutionary Party extends capital's illusory perspective to horizons it could never reach on its own. The quantitative illusion spreads. The exploited join up, count themselves, draw their conclusions. Fierce slogans make bourgeois hearts miss a beat. The greater the number, the more the leaders prance around arrogantly and the more demanding they become. They draw great programs for the conquest of power. This new power prepares to spread out on the remains of the old. Bonaparte's soul smiles in satisfaction. Of course, deep changes are being programmed in the code of illusions. But everything must be submitted to the symbol of quantitative accumulation. The demands of the revolution increase as militant forces grow, in the same way that the rate of the social profit that is taking the place of private profit must grow. So capital enters a new illusory spectacle, phase. Old needs press on insistently under new labels. The productivity god continues to rule, unrivaled. How good is it to count ourselves? It makes us feel strong. The unions count themselves, the parties count themselves, the bosses count themselves, so do we. Ring a ring of roses. Then when we stop counting, we try to ensure that things stay as they are. If change cannot be avoided, we'll bring it about without disturbing anyone. Ghosts are easily penetrated. Every now and then, politics come to the fore. Capital often invents ingenious solutions. Then social peace hits us. The silence of the graveyard. The illusion spreads to such an extent that the spectacle absorbs nearly all the available forces. Not a sound. Then the defects and the monotony of the mise-en-scene. The curtain rises on unforeseen situations. The capitalist machinery begins to falter. Revolutionary involvement is discovered. It happened in 68. Everyone's eyes nearly fell out of their sockets. Everyone extremely ferocious, leaflets everywhere, mountains of leaflets and pamphlets and papers and books, old ideological differences lined up like tin soldiers. 
Even the anarchists rediscovered themselves, and they did so historically according to the needs of the movement. Everyone was quick, dull, was quite dull-witted, the anarchists too. Some people woke up from their spectacular slumber and, looking around for space and air to breathe, seeing anarchists said to themselves, At last, here's who I want to be with. They soon realized their mistake. Things did not go as they should have gone done in that direction either. There, too, stupidity and spectacle. And so they ran away. They closed up in themselves. They fell apart, accepted capital's game. And if they didn't accept it, they were banished, even by the anarchists. The machinery of 68 produced the best civil servants of the new techno-bureaucratic state, but it also produced its antibodies. The process of quantitative illusion became evident. On the one hand, it received fresh lymph to build a new view of the commodity spectacle. On the other, there was a flaw. It has become blatantly obvious that confrontation at the level of production is ineffective. Take over the factories and fields and schools and neighborhoods and self-manage them, the old evolutionary anarchist proclaimed. We will destroy power in all its forms, they added, but without getting to the roots of the problem. Although conscious of its gravity and extent, they preferred to ignore it, puffing their hopes in the creative spontaneity of the revolution. But in the meantime, they wanted to maintain control of production. Whatever happens, whatever creative forms the revolution might express, we must take over the means of production, they insisted. Otherwise, the enemy will defeat us at that level. So they began to accept all kinds of compromise. They ended up creating another, even more macabre spectacle. And spectacular illusion has its own rules. Anyone who wants to direct it must abide by them. They must know and apply them, swear by them. The first is that production affects everything. If you do not produce, you are not a man. The revolution is not for you. Why should we tolerate parasites? Should we go to work in place of them, perhaps? Should we see to their livelihood as well as our own? Besides, wouldn't all these people with vague ideas and a claim to doing as they please not turn out to be, quote, objectively useful to, our counter to the counter-revolution? Well, in that case, better attack them right away. We know who our allies are, whom we want to side with. If we scare them, then let's do it all together. Organize and import perfect order. And may no one put their feet on the table or let their trousers down. Let's organize our specific organizations. Train militants who know the techniques of struggle at the place of production. The producers will make the revolution. We will only be there to make sure they don't do anything silly. No, that's all wrong. How will we be able to stop them from making mistakes? At the spectacular level of organization, there are some who are capable of making far more noise than we are. And they have breath to spare. Struggle at the workplace, struggle for the defense of jobs, struggle for production. When will we break out of the circle? When will we stop biting our tails? The deformed man always finds mirrors that make him handsome. Decide. Chapter 4 What madness the love of work is. With great scenic skill, capitalists succeeded in making the exploited love, exploitation, the hanged man, the rope, and the slave, his chains. This idealization of work has been the death of the revolution until now. 
The movement of the exploited has been corrupted by the bourgeois morality of production, which is not only foreign to it, but is also contrary to it. It is no accident that the trade unions were the first sector to be corrupted, precisely because of their closer proximity to the management of the spectacle of production. Now is the time to oppose the non-work ascetic to the work ethic. We must counter the satisfaction of spectacular needs imposed by consumer society with the satisfaction of man's natural needs seen in the light of that primary essential need, the need for communism. In this way, the quantitative evaluation of needs is overturned. The need for communism transforms all other needs and their pressures on man. Man's poverty, the consequence of exploitation, has been seen as the foundation of future redemption. Christianity and evolutionary movements have walked hand in hand throughout history. We must suffer in order to conquer paradise or to acquire the class consciousness that will take us to revolution. Without the work ethic, the Marxist notion of proletariat would not make sense. But the work ethic is a product of the same bourgeois rationalism that allowed the bourgeoisie to control, to conquer power. Corporatism resurfaces through the mesh of proletarian internationalism. Everyone struggles within their own section. At most, they contact similar ones in other countries through the unions. The mon- monolithic multinationals are opposed by monolithic international unions. Let's make the revolution, but save the machinery, the working tool, that mythical object that reproduces the historical virtue of the bourgeoisie now in the hands of the proletariat. The heir to the revolution is destined to become the consumer and main actor of the capitalist spectacle of tomorrow. Idealized at the level of the clash as the beneficiary of its outcome, the revolutionary class disappears in the idealization of production. When the exploited come to be enclosed within a class, all the elements of the spectacular already exist, just as they do for the class of exploiters. The only way for the exploited to escape the globalizing project of capital is through the refusal of work, production, and political economy. But refusal of work must not be confused with lack of work in a society which is based on the latter. The marginalized look for work. They do not find it. They are pushed into ghettos. They are criminalized. Then that all becomes part of the management of this productive spectacle as a whole. Producers and unemployed are equally indispensable to capital. But the balance is a delicate one. Contradictions explode and produce various kinds of crisis, and it is in this context that revolutionary intervention takes place. So, the refusal of work, the destruction of work, is an affirmation of the need for non-work. The affirmation that man can reproduce and objectify himself in non-work through the various solicitations that this stimulates in him. The idea of destroying work is absurd if it is seen from the point of view of the work ethic, But how? So many people are looking for work, so many unemployed, and you talk about destroying work? The Luddite ghost appears and puts all the revolutionaries who have read all the classics to fright. 
The rigid model of the frontal attack on capitalist forces must not be touched. All the failures and suffering of the past are irrelevant. So is the shame and betrayal. Ahead, comrades. Better days will come. Onwards ahead. It would suffice to show what the concept of, quote, free time, a temporary suspension of work, is bogged down in today to scare proletarians back into the stagnant atmosphere of the class organizations, parties, unions, and hangers-on. The spectacle offered by the bureaucratic leisure organizations is deliberately designed to depress even the most fertile imaginations, but this is no more than an ideological cover one of the many instruments of the total war that make up the spectacle as a whole. The need for communism transforms everything. Through the need for communism, the need for non-work moves from the negative aspect, opposition to work, to the positive one, the individual's complete availability to themselves, the possibility to express themselves absolutely freely, breaking away from all models, even those considered to be fundamental and indispensable, such as those of production. But revolutionaries are dutiful people and are afraid to break with all models, not least that of revolution, which constitutes an obstacle to the full realization of what the concept means. They are afraid they might find themselves without a role in life. Have you ever met a revolutionary without a revolutionary project? A project that is well-defined and presented clearly to the masses? Whatever kind of revolutionary would be one who claimed to destroy the model, the wrapping, the very foundations of the revolution? By attacking concepts such as quantification, class, project, model, historical task, and other such old stuff, one would run the risk of having nothing to do, of being obliged to act in reality, modestly, like everyone else like millions of others who are building the revolution day by day without waiting for signs of a fatal deadline. And to do this, you need courage. With rigid models and little quantitative games, you remain within the realm of the unreal. The illusory project of the revolution, an amplification of the spectacle of capital. By abolishing the ethic of production, you enter revolutionary reality directly. It is difficult even to talk about such things because it does not make sense to mention them in the pages of a treatise. To reduce these problems to a complete and final analysis would be to miss the point. The best thing would be an informal discussion capable of bringing about the subtle magic of wordplay. It is a real contradiction to talk of joy seriously. Summer nights are heavy. One sleeps badly in tiny rooms. It is the eve of the guillotine. Zo de Alexa. Chapter 5 The exploited also find time to play, but their play is not joy. It is a macabre ritual, an awaiting death, a suspension of work in order to lighten the pressure of the violence accumulated during the activity of production. In the illusory world of commodities, play is also an illusion. We imagine we are playing, while all we're really doing is monotonously, monotonously repeating the roles assigned to us by capital. When we become conscious of the process of exploitation, the first thing we feel is a sense of revenge, 
The last is joy. Liberation is seen as setting right a balance that has been upset by the wickedness of capitalism, not as the coming of a world of play to take the place of the world of work. This is the first phase of the attack on the bosses. The phase of immediate awareness. What strikes us are the chains, the whip, the prison walls, sexual and racial barriers. Everything must come down. So we, ourselves, so we, as ourselves, and strike the adversary to make them pay for their responsibility. During the night of the guillotine, the foundations for a new spectacle are laid. Capital regains strength. First the boss's heads fall, and then those of the revolutionaries. It is impossible to make the revolution with the guillotine alone. Revenge is the antechamber of power. Anyone who wants to avenge themselves requires a lead-in a leader to take them to victory and restore wounded justice, and whoever cries for vengeance, vengeance wants to come into possession of what has been taken away from them. Right to the supreme abstraction, the appropriation of surplus value. The world of the future must be one where everyone works. Fine. So we will have imposed slavery on everyone, with the exception of those who make it function and who, precisely for that reason, become the new bosses. No matter what, the bosses must pay for their wrongs. Very well. We will carry, quote, the Christian ethic of sin, judgment, and reparation into the revolution, as well as the concepts of, quote, debt and, quote, payment, clearly, of mercantile origins. This is all part of the spectacle. Even when it is not managed by power directly, it can easily be taken over. Role reversal is one of the techniques of drama. It might be necessary to attack using the arms of revenge and punishment at a certain moment in the class struggle. The movement might not possess any others, so it will be the moment for the guillotine. But revolutions must be, revolutionaries must be aware of the limitations of such arms. They should not deceive themselves or others. Within the paranoid framework of a rationalizing machine such as capitalism, the concept of the revolution of revenge can even become part of the spectacle as it continually adapts itself. The movement of production seems to come about thanks to the blessing of economic science, but in reality it is based on the illusory anthropology of the separation of tasks. There is no joy in work, even if it is self-managed. The revolution cannot be reduced to a simple reorganization of work, not that alone. There is no joy in sacrifice, death, and revenge, just as there is no joy in counting oneself. Arithmetic is a negation of joy. Anyone who desires to live does not produce death. A transitory acceptance of the guillotine leads to the institutionalism, leads to its institutionalization. But at the same time, anyone who loves life does not embrace their exploiter. To do so would signify that they are against life in favor of sacrifice, self-punishment, work, and death. In the graveyard of work, centuries of exploitation have accumulated a huge mountain of revenge. The leaders of the revolution sit upon this mountain impassively. They study the best way to draw profit from it. So the spur of revenge must be addressed against the interests of the new caste in power symbols and flags. 
slogans and complicated analyses. The ideological apparatus does everything that is necessary. It is the work ethic that makes this possible. Anyone who delights in work and wants to take over the means of production does not want things to go ahead blindly. They know by experience that the bosses have had a strong organization on their side in order to make exploitation work. They think that just as strong and perfect an organization will make liberation possible. Do everything in your power. Productivity must be saved at all costs. What a swindle. The work ethic is the Christian ethic of sacrifice. The boss's ethic thinks to which the massacres of history have succeeded each other with worrying regularity. These people cannot comprehend that it would be so that it would be possible not to produce any surplus value and that no one and that one could also refuse to do so. That it is possible to assert one's will not to produce thus struggling against both the boss's economic structures and the ideological ones that permeate the whole of Western thought. It is essential to understand that the work ethic is the foundation of the quantitative revolutionary project. Arguments against work would be senseless if they were made by revolutionary organizations with their logic of quantitative growth. The substitution of the work ethic with the aesthetic of joy would not mean an end to life, as so many worried comrades would have it. To the question, what will we eat? One could quite simply reply, what we produce. Only production would no longer be the dimension in which man determines himself, as that would come about in the sphere of play and joy. One could produce as something separate from nature, and then join with it as something that is nature itself. So it would be possible to stop production at any moment when there is enough. Only joy would be uncontrollable, a force unknown to the civilized larvae that populate our era, a force that will multiply the creative impulse of the revolution a thousandfold. The social wealth of the communist world is not measured in an accumulation of surplus value, even if it turns out to be managed by a minority that calls itself the party of the proletariat. This situation reproduces power and denies the very essence of anarchy. Communist social wealth comes from the potential for life that comes after the revolution. Qualitative, not quantitative. Accumulation must substitute capitalist accumulation. The revolution of life takes the place of the merely economic revolution. Productive potential takes the place of crystallized production. Joy takes the place of the spectacle. The refusal of the spectacular market of capitalist illusions will create another kind of exchange, from fictitious quantitative change to a real qualitative one. Circulation of goods will not base itself on objects and their illusionist reification, but on the meaning that the objects have for life. And this must be a life meaning, not a death one. So these objects will be limited to the precise moment in which they are exchanged, and their significance will vary according to the situations in which this takes place. The same object could have profoundly different, quote, values. It will be personified. Nothing to do with production as we know it now in the dimension of capital. Exchange itself 
will have a different meaning when seen through the refusal of unlimited production. There is no such thing as freed labor. There is no such thing as integrated labor, manual, intellectual. What does exist is the division of labor and the sale of the workforce, that is, the capitalist world of production. The revolution is the negation of labor and the affirmation of joy. Any attempt to impose the idea of work, quote, fair work, work without exploitation, quote, self-managed work, where they exploited art to reappropriate themselves of the whole of the productive process without exploitation, is a mystification. The concept of the self-management of production is valid only as a form of struggle against capitalism. In fact, it cannot be separated from the idea of the self-management of the struggle. If the struggle is extinguished, self-management becomes nothing other than than self-management of one's exploitation. If the struggle is victorious, the self-management of production becomes superfluous, because after the revolution, the organization of production is superfluous and counter-revolutionary.